You're listening to a podcast from Blogging Heads TV. Hi, welcome to Blogging Heads TV. You're watching Culturally Determined, and I'm your host, Arya Cohen-Wade. And my guest today is an old favorite from Blogging Heads, um, David Cleon. David, could you introduce yourself? Hi. Uh, I, a few years back, was uh, an editor working with Arya and Bob Wright and everyone else at Blogging Heads. Um, so I hosted a bunch of these, and I set up a lot of them. And uh, these days, I'm just a freelance writer and editor in Brooklyn, where I live. This is my room. It's um, not much bigger than what you can see behind you. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, I've, I've written recently for the New York Times, The Guardian, The Forward. Um, actually, I think the pieces that I most recommend that I've done recently were in a smaller publication called Jewish Currents, where I've uh, branched out a little from my usual Russia and politics beat to write about culture more. Um, I had a long piece about Woody Allen and how he and sort of reckoning with him in the Me Too moment mm -hmm. that uh, I would love if you guys posted a link to. Yeah, we can uh, link to that. We can talk about that a little bit. It wasn't on our plans, but I did read that piece and thought it was interesting. Um, yeah, if we let's let's uh, let's hit the topics we were going to discuss first. But if sure. we have time, I, I might get into that a little. Um, but yeah, uh, I freelance and I do non-media stuff to pay the bills and uh, I tweet a lot uh, and that takes up an inordinate amount of my life, which is actually on topic today. Yeah, um, your Twitter account has kind of blown up in the past year or so. Um, I think one of the things that you've kind of established as like your, like somewhere between a beat and a hobby horse <laughs> is problems with the New York Times opinion section. And more specifically, their regular cast of columnists, um, who you've, uh, been critiquing and many other people. It, it seems like, it's like a, a, it seems to have come to a boiling point in the past month or so with, um, some stuff that the uh, occasional columnist and editor Barry Weiss, uh, wrote about and tweeted and, uh, Brett Stevens, his, his, uh, recent work has come in for, some mockery as well. And then they, they seem to just run weird shit, like this thing about pasta explaining Trump or something. It's just, <laughs> so there's just, there's multiple weird things about the New York Times op-ed page, but what, what, what are you thinking about it these days? Okay. Well, I guess we should get a little background on what's going on there uh, to the best of my understanding. So um, the New York Times, I guess not long before the um, 2016 uh, election got a new editor in chief, Dean Baquet. I think that's how you pronounce his name. Yeah, Baquet or Baquet, I'm not sure. Yeah. Um, and, um, who, you know, has made some significant changes across the board. And there's a very broad critique that definitely didn't start with me of some of his handling of the paper generally. Uh, uh, you know, it comes from a lot of different places. Obviously, conservatives have criticized the Times forever, which is something that, um, he seems to be extremely sensitive to. And he's made much of the, the newsroom extremely sensitive to. It seems like it's a central cause for him not to be, um, you know, seen as, as, as the, the lefty, irrelevant New York Times. Mm -hmm. Um, which for people who I think identify more strongly with the actual left, and I'd include myself, um, this is kind of laughable. The New York Times is seen not just currently, but throughout its history as uh, the paper of the liberal New York establishment, which is not the same thing as the left at all. It's, mm -hmm. you know, uh, it, it, it has an affluent readership. And that's obvious enough if you look at, you know, who this travel and styles and 
fashion everything are marketed toward um and uh you know i'm not that and or just what it costs to have a a, you know new york times subscription um you know it's it's uh, and and i mean some of my best friends are like that i kind of grew up like that i'm not um i i don't mean to write that off entirely but it's it's one perspective um Somebody recently, well, okay, I'll get to the op-eds in a sec, but um, but just the Times' general news coverage uh, during the 2016 election and after has come in for a lot from a, for a lot of criticism, uh-huh. uh, largely for bending over backwards to be even-handed. Um, they, uh, I mean, there's a pretty strong critique that people like Nate Silver and many others have made uh, of just kind of how they covered the Hillary Clinton supposed email scandal relative to Trump's innumerable scandals and perhaps most importantly, Russiagate. Yeah. Uh, and just the, the vastly disproportionate coverage of, of the Hillary scandal and, and the front page, you know, Comey news, which is obviously Comey's fault too. But um, certainly anyone who was involved in the Clinton campaign or the Democratic Party more broadly uh, or sympathetic to it remains mad about that. And although I wasn't a Clinton person, I was a Bernie person. I, I think they're basically right. I think the New York times did not cover the campaign fairly. Uh, and I'd say that with no, I don't want to make any excuses for the Clinton campaign, but, but I think, I think that's a fair assessment. Just yeah. I, I would say, I mean, the kind of cynical way of looking at it was that they, the, the people at the New York times along with everyone else in the country thought Hillary was going to win. Right. So they so went, they were so they were wrong. First of all, and right. They fact, were they were wrong we say, about that. When we say that everyone in the country thought that, the New York Times, you know, bears no small responsibility for creating that impression. I would say. Okay, I mean, that's true. So it's, it's it, a two way street. But, uh, but they were, you know, covering Clinton the way they were would cover the president in waiting, and the coverage of Trump was more like this is kind of a sideshow, and right. that's what a lot of the media did. Yeah, and I think um, I think that is a perfectly fair explanation of why it happened. It's also, I mean, I don't think there's any way to say it other than as with, for instance, the build up to the Iraq War, something else the New York Times terribly botched um, with Judy Miller and everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is a colossal media failure, like an epochal generational media failure, and it's certainly not theirs alone, and neither was Iraq. But they are, you know, the leading newspaper in in the Western world, and um, and 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 I think it's fair to say they let that presumption shape their coverage, and uh, we were all affected by it. And all media outlets we probably consume and consider respectable were affected by it. And uh, you know, it um, it was irresponsible to cover Donald Trump as a as a comical sideshow and not as you know a someone who realistically could be president of the United States. And in right. retrospect, that's clear. I mean, I'm. I'm I understand hindsight's twenty twenty, and we didn't. I, I certainly wasn't as you know. I had a different way of looking at it at the time, so I don't even absolve myself. But, but, uh, but anyway. Well, I would uh, I would just add that you know Trump's election was um, the result of multiple institutional failures. Pretty much every yes. like large national institution failed. But and the New York Times is part is a large national institution. It is the voice of the establishment. Um, and so they, they failed along with, you know, the major news networks, the I would say, Democratic I Party, would say, the Republican Party. I would put the New York Times' failures, uh, or let's say I would put its, its autopsy of what it did wrong 
behind what the Democratic Party did wrong, which is really uh, behind, sorry, how the Democratic Party has autopsied its own failures, which is really saying something, because I don't think anyone is terribly impressed with the Democratic Party's, you know, self-assessment over the last year. I'm certainly not. But I would say that there's been more demonstrable effort than the Times, which straight up does not admit that they failed. Mm -hmm. Um, And in fact, more to the point, uh, I think since the election uh, has in some ways really gone all in on a strategy that that makes um, a lot of people on the left and a lot of liberals really uncomfortable. Uh, they would deny it. They would deny they're doing this at all. But, you know, you can see it in their coverage of um, you can see it in their news coverage, both uh, the way that they frame the Trump White House, uh, often in the most favorable light or with just kind of headlines, I don't have any specific ones in mind, but headlines and leads that can make really aberrant behavior by the Trump White House seem relatively normalized or equivalent with what past administrations have done, uh, particularly Democratic administrations, um, or just the kind of bloodless ways of describing really unprecedented things in order to seem even-handed. And yeah. again, they're not alone in this at all, but they are standard setters, uh, and they, they we could expect them to be better. And then there have been a number of really weird stories about, you know, let's let's look at a Nazi in Ohio and, and make him seem like a normal person, or this ridiculous one they just ran over the weekend that was like, uh, you know, here's a rich white dude from the coasts who decided to just cut himself off from the news. Oh, I, well, I, I thought that was, there were some framing <laughs> issues with that one. I thought that was an interesting story. I was surprised at the amount of online backlash it got, but um, yeah, but continue. Or, or I would say, um, or just, you know, any number of like, let's pay a visit to Trump country, which, you know, is all based on the presumption, I suppose, that, that the typical Times reader would never go near a small town in, in southeastern Ohio. And uh, so it's, you know, up to the Times to explain such places to them. But at the same time, would they ever go to, you know, a working class black neighborhood in Dayton, Ohio? And the answer is no. And the kind of people that are stereotypically being imagined by the, the the Times editors would never go there either. And those places are no less legitimately a part of the country. Um, and, you know, in fact, a majority of Americans did vote or of the electorate did vote for Hillary Clinton. Yeah. And most of those people aren't Upper West Side elites or anything like Upper West Side elites. So it is this very skewed way of covering the country that, you know, you you can really see them trying hard and you can tell from statements they've made that they, they really want to like beat this rap that they're a liberal paper. And the truth is they're never going to do it because at the end of the day, their readership is liberal. They are based in New York city. Almost everyone who works there is a liberal. Uh, and, uh, you know, and, and, and I would contend, um, I suppose I could contend it in the context of blogging heads too, but maybe that's going to get a little meta, but I would contend in general in the media that, um, there's nothing wrong with having an ideological slant in one direction. And I would argue in the direction that I'm on. Uh, but, you know, I, w- I, I almost would rather read, um, uh, you know, the Weekly Standard or Breitbart or, or the National Review or whatever, or watch Fox News, than, um, than, than see sort of ham-handed attempts by liberal institutions to be, to be nonpartisan, which I think frequently misrepresent both sides and also just misrepresent reality. So that brings us to the op-ed page. Yeah, well, well is, let's, let's pause there. Yeah. So just a, a couple threads to react to. 
I mean, one is this idea that like Trump is an unprecedented threat to norms and standards of governance that have built up been built up in America carefully. And how does the like bloodless view from nowhere style of the mainstream media respond to that? So one question is like Trump. So there's a fact that Trump lies all the time and everyone can like knows this, even the supporters know that he like bullshits and lies constantly. Um, you know, the New York Times does not want to say Donald Trump lied. They'll want to say like, well, there were different perspectives on this one. Right. Or, uh, you know, the facts showed that Mr. Trump maybe was not entirely accurate as he could have been. So they, they always couch it in, you know, this bloodless way. And, you know, what should we do about the fact that Trump lies all the time? Does, does the fact that Trump lies all the time mean we need to break the norm that the paper doesn't accuse someone of lying unless, like, we we know that, like, they would be convicted of libel in a court of law? Or should we, should we, should we keep the standard? Should we junk the standard? I'm, I'm not sure where I end up on that. Fa- it's a fact that he lies. And, and, and I, I, the Times probably has in some contexts actually done good jobs of fact checking him. I'm, I'm not, I'm, I'm not someone who keeps an extremely close watch on this stuff uh but um i i think you know if he says something that is untrue it should be made as clear as possible and it is not partisan to you know that that is not true um but i think it's 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 often more a question of framing um and you know why why do they do this i mean it's partly so no one accused them of bias it's partly for access it's partly because they need to effectively cover uh you know both both parties and both uh parties in Congress and cover the Trump White House where they have some very plugged in reporters. And, um, you know, Trump will go on Twitter if he doesn't like the coverage and he'll talk about the failing New York Times. And, you know, the truth is he'll do that anyway. I mean, the other day he he said, like, you know, who I think it was yesterday. He was like, um, who is this ridiculous woman, Maggie Haberman? She has no access to me. You know, no one talks to her. She's nobody. And, and, and people were like circulating this picture of them, like, you know, hugging it out in the Oval Office. When, because if you, if you read, media knows, Maggie Haberman can get Trump on the phone. Yeah. If you read Maggie Haberman in, in the middle of the night to like, <laughs> yeah. just pivots with her because he really does care what New York journalists think of him and New York Times journalists think of him. Yeah. That's it's what one of the, funny like, tech of his. yeah, the, 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 like, most one of the most bizarre ironies is that he presents himself as this tribune of the people, but really all he wants is like a, co- a favorable cover on the New York Post the next day. Like that's like get right. Donald Trump smiling on the New York Post is like a win. Well, like and above all the times, and above all the times, because you know there, there's the whole thing about him being this outer borough kid who, no matter how rich he is, they don't take him seriously in Manhattan, and you know, and 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 that that never goes away. Um, but so you know. But but whether that were the case or not, I just I understand the need for access. I understand the need to compete with the Washington Post and Politico and Axios and whoever on 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 getting White House scoops. But like there are bigger stories than who's mad at who in the White House today. Although I should say that today's breaking news is a pretty huge story about who's mad at whom in the White House today. Right. But so we're, we're taping this on Tuesday. Who knows what will happen tomorrow? Um, today, today, today is the day that Tillerson was fired. Tillerson uh, was fired. This guy who was like Trump's body man got apparently uh, escorted from the White House premises yesterday because he yeah. is Mar- accused of some kind of financial misdeed or something like that. And yeah, well, who yeah, knows more, what tomorrow? More on that anon, but um, <laughs> but for now, uh, let's just say that a lot of the palace intrigue stuff. I mean, it's important and it should be covered. 
but not at the expense of, you know, being bluntly truthful about what these people are like. And, you know, a lot of the times coverage, I mean, I feel like there's been a lot of, um, uh, a person close to, to Jared and Ivanka said, which, you know, every savvy media observer understands means Jared and Ivanka said, and it's like, yeah. you know, put them on the record or not, or like burn your sources occasionally, especially if they lie, you know, show them that there's a penalty for lying. Yeah. Uh, you know, and if you, if you lose some sources as a result, at least you told the public the truth. I mean, there's a reason why the Michael Wolf Fire and Fury book, which it's clear that all the White House reporters at the Times and everywhere, everywhere else hated that book and hate Michael Wolf. Um, but that book, I think, did the public a service, even though there are some sloppy parts to it. Yeah, I was because, just thinking because today. Because he camped out in the White House, had this ridiculous access. Yeah. And, and then he told the truth that, uh, you know, probably fudging it here and there, but, but, uh, basically told the truth about what he saw. And, um, I think the public has a much clearer view of how fucking insane the Trump White House is. <laughs> yeah, I was just thinking today that <laughs> there wasn't a single, like, large fact from that book that was shown to be false like his yeah. he got some details yeah. wrong and i don't think he got anything more wrong than the average reporter does it's just yeah. little bits here yeah, and there. yeah he was fundamentally yeah. correct about yeah the madhouse i agree with that okay so let's let's talk about so, so but that's that's you know michael wolf who's not someone i i had like a great deal of admiration for certainly not before all this but i have to say um and he and he, i've never encountered him in any way but by most accounts he's not well liked in journalism circles but uh, but perhaps precisely because he's a jerk and because I think he did do some flattering tricks to, you know, dissing the media and, 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 and make normalizing Trump to get himself in the door. But it was all in the service of, of humiliating these people. Like there was an actual goal there mm-hmm. uh, and, and, and properly informing the public and obviously having a best selling book. Um, I, there's a sense in which I admire that. I mean, I think I think that he. Uh, uh, you know, that, I understand why that can't work for everyone all the time, but I, I admire the sort of chutzpah of, of, of really laying it out there. And I think, uh, I think that the, the public, you know, can't ignore how completely unfit all these people are and that this is not a, a normal functioning administration. Yeah. Uh, Yes. But anyway, so so that's just the news side. Let's talk about the opinion side, because there's a there's an important story about that in the last year. And that's been my focus. Yeah. So (laughs) so soon after Trump's election, The Times decided that they were going to bring in a new fresh voice. And this person was uh, Brett Stevens. Well, (laughs) hold on. Hold on. We need to go back a step before. Okay. 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 So, in fact, in point of fact, um, the the Times had, the Times opinion section had been criticized for a very long time. It had been run by a guy, I think his name is Andrew Rosenthal, and it was just kind of stagnant. And this is important to point out because there's a kind of roster that everybody knows of very frustrating or tired or self-parodic columnists at the Times. Tom Friedman, Maureen Dowd, David Brooks, uh, Gail Collins, Paul Krugman, uh, you know, Charles Blow, I guess. Um, yeah. Uh, more recently, Ross Douthat, who, although I have many criticisms of him and don't agree with his fundamental worldview, I think, I think the, the smart take is that he's the best writer on the New York Times op-ed page, uh, of the regular columnists and the most interesting one, despite being very conservative. And that's because he's smarter than most of them. He's young, but not too young. 
And um, in his weird roundabout reactionary way, he actually comes the closest to making Marxian analyses of (laughs) politics. Uh I mean, seriously, he's the only one who I think really understands class as a concept. Uh, You know, the fundamental problem with him is that he has this like reactionary Catholic worldview and wants everyone to have 50 babies or whatever. But, um, you know, he just he just rejects the sexual revolution altogether, which I I completely reject that. Uh, and, but, um, but he's not stupid and he doesn't think that liberals are stupid or that leftists are stupid. And right. that well, makes he, it more interesting he, he, to read. He knows he's writing. So Douthat knows he's writing for a largely liberal audience. He takes liberal arguments seriously, but he has actual core beliefs. Like he is a practicing yeah. Catholic. He really believes this stuff. Um, you, you, I think you name them all except Nick Kristoff. Um, well, and, and he and he understands the big weakness of New York Times style liberalism, which is its massive blind spot toward class. Mm-hmm. And although he is a privileged individual himself uh, and always has been highly privileged and, you know, part of the bubble. He wrote um, he wrote a book called Privilege, I believe. He wrote Wasn't a book it? called Privilege. But yeah. Yeah, he grew up, I think, affluent in Connecticut. He went to Harvard. I mean, uh, he grew up in New Haven, I think, although I think yeah. I don't know if his family was attached to Yale or not. He's, he's lived his whole life in the Northeast corridor and gone to elite schools. It, but, but despite that, I mean, so have I, but despite that, like what makes out that interesting, I think, is that he reads about class. He thinks about class. He understands class as a concept. And I, and I often get the sense reading most New York Times columnists of whatever nominal persuasion that they just don't. And somebody said recently that the, Maybe it was Jeet here. I'm not sure that the the range of opinions on the New York Times op-ed page may not be representative of of uh, America, but it's actually quite representative of the range of opinions on the Upper West Side, uh-huh. <laughs> uh, including conservative opinions on the Upper West Side. And I think that's right, mm-hmm. uh, which is to say no leftists, one man of color and no women of color, very few women generally. Uh, and whether you're a liberal or, you know, a, a, a a conservative minority that is definitely there and growing. And then whether you're a liberal or a conservative on the Times op-ed page, you, you still probably agree on, you know, 75% of things or more. You agree on, you know, neoliberal capitalism, free trade, uh, America's right to intervene in other countries, uh, that only establishment candidates from the two major parties should ever, you know, be in contention for anything. Uh, you know, uh, I would say some very broad socially liberal consensus, although that gets trickier uh, on as far as where the conservatives are. But like, you know, it's, it's a very narrow echo chamber. Um, uh, and, and everybody's been phoning in the same columns forever. So that was the kind of standing criticism of the Times op-ed page under Rosenthal, which, which still largely applies. And all those people are still there. They do make up most of the regular columnists. It seems to be it's 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 like they have life tenure. It's weird. Like it is it is weird. So it's like very... how long has Dowd Dowd's been there since the nineties? Friedman's been there since the nineties. So has Christoph. Yeah. By the way, many, really out. Oh, it's, many it, it's of these weird. people. Oh, there's Frank Bruni who is completely useless and yeah. <laughs> wrote a column today about how the answer to uh, to Donald Trump is is pasta. Uh, he was a he very just, good. Like, went to Rome. He was a very good food pasta. critic. Um, I used yeah, to read I mean, his food criticism and enjoyed it a lot, um, but he has not written a single memorable thing. Well, I've, I've, heard, I've, heard, I've heard mixed reviews of his food criticism, but I think um, it is worth saying, though, that most of these people, before they were professional tenured lifetime opinion pundits, 
most of them actually did something. Um, Maureen Dowd was a was a pretty good reporter. Tom Friedman was reporting from Lebanon and Israel and actually covered the Sabra and Shatila massacres. Yeah, in so the, did Christoph uh, as well. Christoph, actually, I will say, although he has his parodic elements to his credit, still goes around the world reporting. So that's good. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and Frank Bruni was a, was a food writer and so on. And, and it's like they all just suddenly get tapped in to do this. Or Charles Blow, I think, has written a very compelling memoir. Um, but I haven't read it, but by, by most accounts, but, um, but, you know, I find his column tiresome, even though it, it's probably the one I agree with the most these days. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, all, all of these people could be doing better things. And to his enormous credit, Ta-Nehisi Coates, who I think it's fair to say is the consensus pick for most important public intellectual of our time, well, whether people like him or not uh, or agree with him or not. I won't, I I won't name names of anyone who appears on no, this site who doesn't I know, agree I know. with that. But. <laughs> some, some my regular... Uh, am I acting? Uh, just I a little bit. You, you sound fine. Um, some by, by regular Blogging Heads contributors. But he, um, he was um, a, like, he had like a year-long contract with them. And as they, they did some experiments in the yeah. mid-aughts where like Bill, Bill Crystal was there for a year. Yeah. Coates was there for a year. Totally phoning it in, Crystal was. But with with um, with um Coates, they were, they were going to make him a regular columnist, which would have been great for them, but Coates, uh, and this was, he had been at the Atlantic for a while, but he hadn't, um, he hadn't written Between the World and Me yet, so he hadn't, you know, gotten the National Book Award and the Carter Grand. He wasn't writing Black Panther com- comics. You know, he was, he was a very big name, but, um, but he wasn't this, like, superstar quite yet. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and he turned down the times. Uh, he knew he was worth more than that. I don't even necessarily mean in money terms, although I'm sure it's worked out that way. I think he knew like that he needed, he knew that writing, you know, two columns on the week's events every week in this kind of stifling format would drain him of his originality and his talent, which is undeniable. He is undeniably a talented writer and, and an important thinker. Yeah. Uh, and I, I have my quibbles with him too, but he, his importance can't, and it can't be questioned at this point. I right. Think. Well, I, it almost raises the question, like, can this form be done in a uh, intellectually satisfying way? Um, which I wonder comes, about. It comes often. close. But, like, it's hard to come up with an original idea it twice really per week. Is. It really is. And, and you know, I've, I've, you know, I think that blogging, which this site was kind of built as a piggyback on and which has been a, a, a dying art. There was a back when I was working with you guys and this was already have been like um, maybe five or six years ago. Uh, I taped a, a dialogue. I sent one up between um, Alyssa Rosenberg and Mark Tracy um, and uh, they had both come up in blogging and Mark had won an award for his blogging at tablet. And, uh, and they were basically talking about how blogging's dead about the death of blogging. Now blogging never completely died. It's still around, but that particular ecosystem where the most kind of influential inside baseball pundits, uh, and kind of up and coming people challenging the, the establishment all had blogs, people like Ezra Klein and Matt Iglesias and, and so on. Um, or, you know, Megan McArdle or whoever it was, um, or Andrew Sullivan, obviously. Uh, and, you know, they would all link to each other and Gwen Greenwald came out of that system and, and so on. And, uh, at some point, Twitter, Twitter and Facebook killed that system because 
you know, uh, Facebook became about kind of content in isolation, getting as many views as possible and nothing else could keep up. Uh, and sites like Buzzfeed became optimized for that. And then Twitter was never really about driving traffic, but for elite conversation, it was basically faster, more aggressive blogging with a lower barrier to entry. Uh, and, um, and the, the, yeah, for, the, the, for, those and people, for most kind of offhand takes about the news, yeah. Twitter is the optimal platform. You can say as much or as little as you want, and it'll either get traction or it won't. Uh, and, so, and those initial people entered the mainstream, you know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they, they've all and Vox, yeah. and then blah, blah, blah. Right. They either ended up at big places or they, in the case of Vox, started their own or The Intercept. Uh, yeah, they graduated. Um, but I will say, for instance, Andrew Sullivan is someone who, for the duration of the blog era, was an enormously influential figure. He never figured out Twitter. He was never really a great team player at publications, and he cost a lot, I think. And um, then he tried this experiment where he made his blog independent and paywalled, and it just the, the economics weren't there, uh, which is another way of saying he had been overpaid at the previous publications he worked for. Um, and uh, now he writes once a week for New York Magazine, uh, and I'm sure he's doing fine, but I would say his his influence has dropped off considerably. Uh, he basically couldn't, but, you know, his, his political views weren't really optimized for the Twitter sphere. Um, and, um, and, and, and that is sort of what brings us to what's happened to the Times recently. So to the Times op-ed page recently. Right. Okay. So, so, so James Bennett, who was James previously Bennett. the uh, editor of the Atlantic was hired. He was for- the, the Atlantic for a long time. Yeah, at least a decade, I think. He was, and, he was an era-defining editor of The Atlantic. He, he, well, he, he had Sullivan. Kind of, he had Sullivan. He had, he had, he had Coates. He had Iglesias. He had McArdle. He had Douthat. Yeah, no, he had, he had a lot of these people. Um, he made, uh, The Atlantic a big bloggy power player, uh, often getting in, involved in controversies at the same time, like, giving uh, sponsored content to the Church of Scientology or just, you know, various troll bait things by Caitlin Flanagan or Anne-Marie Slaughter or whatever, often, you know, playing at upper middle class women's anxieties. Um, but uh, but it was nothing like what's happened since he moved to the Times and, and promoted Jeffrey Goldberg uh, to, to fill his shoes at, at the Atlantic. Um, I have many criticisms of Goldberg, but I think it's fair to say he has... Um, he has definitely done a better job running the Atlantic than James Bennett has done running the Times opinion page. Uh, he has stayed out of trouble. Um, <laughs> well, fact, is that, what, what is the winning strategy? One, one way yeah, ask. Well, well, actually, it's interesting. I'm gonna, I'm gonna say some nice pe- things about some people I don't generally feel warmly toward. <laughs> Jeffrey Goldberg and, and David Frum. Um, but, you know, all, all from that era of Iraq war promoters who, et cetera, I don't even feel like getting into it. Everybody knows. Mm-hmm. But, um, but I will say, okay, so Jeff Goldberg is clearly friends with David Frum. They're clearly social. They're clearly like-minded about a lot of things, but Frum is more of, you know, right of center and Goldberg is a little more left of center. Um, and, you know, there are a lot of people who reflexively hate from, and I understand why, and I don't, I don't fault that at all. Um, but I will say, as never Trump conservatives go, stipulating, as I, as I will, that I think the never Trump movement is nonsense. I think it doesn't speak for any appreciable number of people. I wish the neocons would all go away. But given that they're not, 
and and that we're kind of stuck with them regardless for now. Um, you know, David Frum is trying to say new and relevant things, and I think it's fair to say succeeding. I think it's fair to say that liberals who are not necessarily inclined to want to hear from him, uh, you know, they they read him and and they think he's describing important things about authoritarianism. And, you know, if you've been following his career for a while, you can call him a hypocrite in various ways. And that's fair. Uh, you can say, what about the Bush era? Fair. But I think the writing he's doing now uh, seems, as best as I can tell, like an honest attempt to grapple with what is happening right now. Mm-hmm. And, and, and and often well written and thoughtful. And um, there is a defensible case for running those. And they're clearly popular. Um so let's contrast that to the approach that James Bennett has taken at the New York Times since he came on. Has it even been a year? I don't think it has been. No, it has to be more than a year. May or something? I don't even. I don't think it's been that long. I think it I was, was thinking it was more like two years, but maybe I'm wrong. No, no, it's definitely post-election. Okay. Because okay, so so Bennett came on from the Atlantic. The first major op-ed columnist he hired, Brett Stevens, was uh, amazingly Pulitzer-winning, although so are lots of people. So is so is Maureen Dowd. So is Tom Friedman. It's amazing, you know, who gets uh, Pulitzers. But um, well, to give them to anyone these days, I guess so. But well, you know, <laughs> Walter Durante back in the day, covering for the crimes of Stalin. So, but. Um, I mean, really, we should just abolish the Pulitzer <laughs> But, um, but, but, you know, he won it for, you know, standard neocon right of center commentary at the Wall Street Journal. Um, and there was, uh, and, and his friend who was a, uh, sometime opinion contributor and books editor there, Barry Weiss, who I'm just going to say right now, I went to college with Barry. I used to know her pretty well. I don't really want to get into any of that here. Uh, and I'll probably be talking more about other people as a result. Um, but you know, I, I'll give basic facts just because they're part of the story. Bretton Barry, as best as I understand it, came over from the Wall Street Journal to the New York Times, hired by Bennett at the same time. Um, because as a, what was supposed to be a flattering profile of Weiss and at the, uh, JTA explained, um, uh, the, the Wall Street Journal had become an increasingly hostile place for kind of neocon establishment conservative types. Uh, it had been more sympathetic to Trump and Barry and Brett were on the anti-Trump, uh, never Trump bandwagon, uh, like I'd say most neocons or fellow travelers were. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, my thinking is, if you speak for an ideology that should be discredited in and of itself for, you know, the various wars it championed and the, the war on crime and, and, and all of this, uh, and then on top of that has completely lost any sway within the Republican party. So they can't make a case that they represent some large part of the country. You know, my feeling is go away. I mean, if individual <laughs> neocons like from, you know, can maybe genuinely say something worthwhile, then, Sure, I guess, give them a chance. But like the idea that there just need to be neocons on every masthead forever, it's like they, I, I really think they speak for a circle of maybe two dozen people tops. Like I, I really, I, you know, well-connected elite people who've been a sort of, you know, Potemkin village for the, for the Republican party and what it's really about for a long time. 
That's my critique. I don't know why they're still around. James Bennett had a different theory, which is, no, we need more of that. Uh, the Wall Street Journal is pushing them out so it can have more pro-Trump voices. Uh, you know, they could retire to the, the Weekly Standard or commentary or wherever or do something else with their lives. But no, I think they belong on the New York Times opinion page. Um, I'm going to hire them before I hire any women of color uh, as full-time contributors, before I hire um, any anyone who supported or even like implied support for Bernie Sanders, who won almost half the Democratic electorate uh, in, in the 2016 primaries, and almost all millennials, or over 80% of millennials, and is, I, I, I am biased, but I think any reasonable analysis would say that his views of social democracy are where the Democratic Party is trending and are broadly popular in polls, and, it, and he's popular, and it would be absurd not to have somebody speaking for that worldview, but in fact, every single, I mean, the, the, he actually has hired one, I would say, solidly left of center columnist, Michelle Goldberg, who has written some good columns, but she was for Hillary. Uh, it's like they're just allergic. Every, I, I'm pretty sure that everyone who's on, every contributing opinion writer voted for Hillary Clinton. Um, literally all of them. Either, right? either in the primary. Conservatives did too. Or in the general election, yeah. Or I don't know if like Douthat voted for her, but he, he ostensibly did not vote for Trump. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, the, the Bennett in hilariously leaked memos. And I just want to give a shout out to Ashley Feinberg of the Huffington Post, who is a really excellent media reporter yeah. and just reporter generally and writer and uh, turns inconsistently funny and illuminating things and manages to um, do really mean coverage while coming across as really nice, which is like a rare talent <laughs> and one I really respect. Mm -hmm. Um uh, anyway, the, the New York Times staffers do not like this situation on the op-ed page, and boy, have they been leaking to her. And they've leaked, you know, various transcripts and conversations with uh, with Bennett and recordings uh, that make him seem hopelessly out of touch and um, and clueless. And you know, saying things like, you know, well, we, we're trying to get diverse points of view and trying to hear all sides and all this. But then he's like, well, the New York Times is a capitalist paper and we support capitalism. And it's like the only interesting fresh points of view are the ones challenging neoliberal capitalism from the left and the right, whether that's, uh, you know, Bernie Sanders style leftism or, or people who are well to the left of him who are making intelligent critiques, you know, real socialists and communists and anarchists and so on, who, who places like Jacobin uh, or, or any number of other places. Um, and then it's also, you know, I, I, I'm wary of promoting this kind of stuff, but there are voices on the right that are, uh, I actually thought the Times did, did do one thing right in the last week, the Times op-ed page, which was to run Daniel McCarthy, the, um, mm -hmm. editor chief of the American Conservative, uh, in a piece making, you know, a eloquent, well-argued, I don't think correct, but, 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 you know, serious, and, and I'm sure sincerely meant case for economic nationalism and protectionism. Yeah. And basically the smartest version of what Trump and Bannon ostensibly stand for. And I definitely support running an op-ed like that. Uh, I, I, I don't support running, you know, dozens of op-eds like that every week. But, um, but I think that is a real worldview that would get sometimes people outside their bubble. But that's not where Bennett's at. Bennett just wanted, uh, sorry about that. Um, Bennett just wanted, uh, 
you know, to have right of center trolls who, uh, you know, half the time agree with the average liberal times reader on everything. So they don't add any viewpoint diversity. You know, they all went to the same schools and came from the same handful of places and so on, uh, live in the same handful of places. Uh, and, uh, and then, and then when they're not saying that they're saying something egregiously wrong and trolling. Uh, and of course the, the most popular thing, and this must be an obsession of Bennett's because it's an obsession of, of, um, people at the Atlantic, like Connor Friedersdorf, uh, and then it's an obsession of, of Brett Stevens and Barry Weiss, and for that matter, David Brooks, who actually also, I think, was at the Atlantic in some capacity at some point, um, and, uh, and, and Ross Douthat, although I, he's smarter about it, but basically all of these people are obsessed with the same thing, which is um, the supposed scourge of, of illiberalism uh, and censorship on college campuses. Um, and I have gotten increasingly angry and outspoken on this subject because it's it's a fraud. Yeah, and there's increasing evidence that it's a fraud. And actually, Matt Iglesias had a very good rundown in Vox uh, with you know data what they're good at. Vox, by the way, I want to say good publication. It, it takes some crap from the left, but I, I generally approve of what they do. Mm-hmm. I think uh, I think they do. I think they show that it's possible to have smart, substantive, data driven. Uh, contextualized, accessible journalism that has a clear bias, which I would say is the bias of the progressive wing of the Democratic Party, not the left, but, you know, the uh, idealistic young millennial progressives. Uh, and, um, and, and, and to do that, you know, in a way that, I mean, they, they definitely did some hiccups early on, but that I would say in general is not embarrassing, which... You know, honestly, how many publications, how many DC-based publications can you say that these days? <laughs> but like, uh, I, I think, um, you know, and and they can call out bullshit. I mean, Matt Iglesias in particular, I think, understands that the Republican Party is a radical right party, and he doesn't mince words about it. And he uses data and history and evidence to make that case. And it's not just him being like a ranty partisan. He understands that that could be objectively true and it could be demonstrated. And, uh, uh, you know, whereas, whereas there is partisan media that's just going to yell at the other side in a lazy way, no matter what, and cover up the blemishes of its own side, which actually Vox did its fair bit of during the campaign, but I think they're a lot better now. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and then there's also, you know, phony both sidesism where no matter what, one side is saying it has exact moral equivalence with the other side. So, you know, they can push the envelope all the way to Trump and beyond and to straight up Nazis and still be treated as respectable. Um, you know, so, so we're, that was a huge tangent. I'm sorry. But <laughs> no, that's okay. Um, but, but we're, we're with the, with the campus thing, there's just not uh, a scourge of, 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 uh, students on campuses shooting down speakers. It has happened in a handful of high profile campuses. The speakers who are being shot down are always, I would say, highly questionable figures, uh, or at least the most prominent examples are people like Charles Murray, who, you know, burned a cross in his youth and preposterously tells us he didn't know what it meant, uh, who is most famous for writing a book, uh, arguing in completely 
scientifically garbage ways that uh, that you know there's a biological correlation between race and, and IQ and basically trying to mainstream eugenics. Uh, you know, uh, students, I think, have a right to uh, to want to shut this guy down, uh, to not give him a respected platform. Christina Hoff Summers, the uh, American Enterprise Institute, quote unquote, scholar, who, as far as I can tell, has done no sub- substantial scholarship in her life, is an absolute troll and um, called me out for my mental health uh, totally out of the blue, just like tweeted at me a week or so ago at a completely random tweet of mine and said, David's off his meds again. Uh, and, uh, and then I humiliated her over it and she apologized and she revealed she was drunk in an airport. So <laughs> these are not intellectually impressive people. Um, she apologized, but I, she apologized to me for being a jerk, but not for, you know, stigmatizing mentally ill people, which is what I wanted her to apologize for. Uh-huh. And then she got pissy at me because I wasn't accepting her apology and neither did anyone else think I should. So, you know, these are these are the people that it's ostensibly so important. Or then there's Milo Yiannopoulos, the confessed pedophile. And, um, you know, all, all of these people are, um, are, are trolls, frauds, and hucksters who deliberately go to elite liberal arts campuses where a very tiny you know, percentage of the um, college-educated population goes in order to, uh, you know, set off these incidents. And I can... I can sort of see you preparing to say, well, should, why are the kids taking the bait? Well, I mean, the kids the kids basically need to learn that they're doing no one a service by taking the bait. And then maybe this lesson so, will, will take five more years to sink in. But, like... I think there's a legitimate debate to be had on that. And if I were an undergraduate involved in um, political discourse, I might well be having that debate with the kids doing that. Although... Although I'm increasingly sympathetic to their view, but I mean, like, who gives it, honestly? Who gives a shit, a shit about Christina Hoff Summers? Very few people really take her seriously in any way. But suddenly, we're we're hearing about like she's at Lewis and Clark College or whatever, and she gets shouted down by like 15 students. So this, so she gets in the news, so she wins. I mean, the students get to have fun because they get to like, you know, march around and yell and have posters and stuff. But then it's ultimately ultimately a victory for her because we're talking about her when really she doesn't matter at all. <laughs> Well, okay, so I, I, this is something I'm, I think I can definitely push back on. Um, because, you know, John Chait, who was actually debating me last week after uh, I got into this little squabble with Christina Hoff Summers, and he and I had a civil debate. I have, I have some respect for him, whereas I have no respect for Summers or Murray or any, or Milo or any of them. Um, uh, but we were talking about, we were talking about sort of like which speech matters and which speech doesn't. And then he, he's also been talking a lot about like, you know, why is everyone picking on Barry Weiss? Leave her alone. Or why is everyone, you know, picking on, on any of these? Why is everyone picking on me, Jonathan Chait? Leave me alone. Cause he comes in for a lot of hate from, from the left. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the answer to that is pretty clear. There's power dynamics involved. You know, there, there are a handful of, major brand name publications in this country and TV shows and stuff and universities. Um, there are a handful of people who get paid real livings, you know, pretty, pretty lucrative livings to express opinions. Um, I believe in opinion journalism and it's something that runs through, you know, my life and my career. It's something I care about. It's something I grew up reading and something I write still for various publications. Uh, it's what blogging heads is all about. And, um, I, I take it seriously. 
I think that people should say things that matter. Otherwise, it's pointless. Otherwise, we don't need to have opinion journalism at all. Uh, so I think there's something deeply disingenuous. And, and then I would throw in the think tank world with this too, right? I mean, uh, Summers is at AEI. I think Murray is too, or he certainly was. Uh, he has books out. I think she may have a book. Um, you know, Milo had a book deal until, uh, until Roxanne Gay and, and other people managed to get that killed and honestly good for them. Uh, but, um, you know, I, I think they do matter. I think that, and I think it's totally disingenuous for someone like John Chait to go out and be like, why do people like me and my friend Barry and all these other people matter? Like you do or you don't. If you do, if you want to be in the arena discussing things, then you should be prepared to take serious criticism when you're wrong. And as, as, as they often are. Well, yeah, and, no, I mean, uh, there's a difference between like the no platform thing and, you know, disagreeing, uh, strenuously in a like civil or semi-civil way. Like the no platform thing just seems like such a, like shooting yourself in the foot every, every time you do it because it just creates a circus-like atmosphere and it gets a lot of attention and publicity for the person who's being no platform. Now, some people are truly repellent, like Richard Spencer and Milo Minopolis. And you can say, like, you know, he should not speak at my college campus. He is, like, a white supremacist. Okay. But yeah. when you, like, drag it down to Christina Haas Summers, who's just, like, a dime a dozen, who, who, like, by the way, like, some, like feminist critic. This podcast and did not call out any, anything right. on it. Right. So she's, of, like, white supremacist curious or all, something. All of these say. people are a degree removed from it. Jordan Peterson, the guy who you hear about a lot these days, who's, who's really something is, you know, a degree removed from, from the alt-right. I mean, they, he certainly has a lot of fans in that world, and he dog whistles to them. Charles Murray certainly does. Uh, I mean, the... the right, they're, but they're, they're, but they're, able to par, they're able to parlay the liberal or leftist backlash to them into, like, more attention for themselves, which is, for a lot of them, what you know, what, what they want in the end. So I think, I think it's just, it's just a stupid strategy, um, for like college activists to, pr- to pursue. But anyway, yeah, there is no like national epidemic of no. like illiberalism on college campuses. No, it does and not it's, deserve and it's the attention also, it's getting. And it's also, I mean, I think, I think your point that it draws more attention to them than, than, than they otherwise would get is probably true. But at the same time, they are public figures. They do have platforms regardless, which is kind of the point. Uh, that, you know, these are people who go on TV, who get op-eds in various places, who, who get book deals. So it's not like they have a platform regardless. So the question is, when they come to the college, does, does, does the college want to honor them? Does the college want, and I don't even mean, does it want to honor them because they're, you know, good people or because, um, or, or, you know, or does it only want to honor liberals? And one of, one of, I think the, the biggest, uh, canards about about this whole debate is when people are like um you know you just want to hear people who agree with you i mean you and i are on left of center twitter all day do do you think everybody who is left of center agrees with everyone else who does yeah yeah it's it's not just you and i are having a, a very civil and very reasonable disagreement right now about no platforming like differences of opinions exist in all kinds of places and can conservatives can have legitimate ones too but that's not what what i really object to is these people are not scholars or intellectuals they're frauds and provocateurs and the the campus is bringing them on like you could say the students are creating the incident, but let's be real. They are coming to the campus to create an incident. And ultimately, like, maybe students are playing into their hands, but 
I've, I have decided my responsibility to the extent I have a platform and I'm weighing in on these things um, is to take the side of the students who are standing up to bigots and hucksters uh, who are still forming their views, who are young and, you know, excitable in various ways, uh, but who I find by and large, first of all, are standing for justice and not injustice. And second, um, are generally articulating their points better. Uh, and I, I would like to shout down people like Summers in the public sphere too. Uh, I would like to, I mean, she has a right to speak and, and, and if people want to find her to have a platform, then they can, but I would like to, I, I would, I would like to have voices calling that out. I'd like to have more voices calling that out. What I don't want is for the most important, um, liberal media institution in the country, the New York Times, to be constantly, uh, running uh, you know, not not just conservative takes. I'm fi- I'm fine with running some conservative takes, but running you know basically whitewashings of people like Summers and Murray uh, and Ben Shapiro, who's a huge racist. Um, but I guess Barry West likes him because she wrote a whole column about how he's actually one of the good ones, and then there was a news article about how he's actually one of the good ones. This is someone who you know, says Arabs live in sewage and, uh, and, and that, um, you know, uh, Elizabeth Warren smokes a peace pipe or whatever. I mean, he's a, he's a racist. Uh, but, you know, I mean, it was weird. Another huge screw up that Bennett had was he hired this woman, Quinn Norton, and fired her six hours later. Uh, and she, I was not impressed with her when I took a look at her. I didn't know much about her before, but, um, but she did seem to be a sort of an iconoclastic voice, at least, which is something. But it turned out that she has an active, ongoing friendship with a literal neo-Nazi named Weave, uh, who she stands by no matter what, even though she says he's a horrible person. Um, yeah, that, that, the whole incident was was bizarre. Was bizarre, and 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 that really, she was being brought on the editorial board. It suggested this is not someone with great editorial judgment, someone who, <laughs> you know, is going to die on the hill of being friends with a Nazi. But then I look at that, and then I look at you know Barry, who who is standing up for Ben Shapiro, and I'm like, these are these are really like very marginal. Like Ben Shapiro and Barry know how to play the game. They know how to make their racism socially acceptable. Uh, they know how to color within the lines. And, uh, and Brett Stevens knows how to do that. Uh, which is, you know, what the, the Republican Party has done our whole life. And, you know, Quinn Norton, who's, I don't even think is a conservative, but made the mistake of making friends with an avowed racist who is like, you know, doesn't, doesn't euphemize it at all. And, and that's why, that's why she can't be there. Um, you know, I, I think that, I think, it is really disturbing how many op-eds the Times and then the Atlantic and other places are running, basically making it seem like the most important thing happening in the world of these campus speech debates. It is wildly outsized attention. Uh, I think their point of view is, is, is wrong. I think that the students are expressing free speech. I mean, I, I'm not, I, I don't, I understand why you wouldn't condone violence, physical violence. Um, I understand why no one should condone censorship, and I am not calling for any of the people I named today to be censored for, you know, they all have very big platforms. That's the point. Um, but what they really want is safe spaces, uh, the term that they're always making fun of. They right. want safe spaces for right-wing trolls to go to campus and say horrible things and only be politely challenged. Um, and I don't, I, I don't think that's right. I don't, I don't want that. I think 
even if you don't believe in no platforming, even if your objections to that are noted, what I think is absolutely the correct response to someone like Summer speaking on your campus, bring signs, bring rude, angry signs, mob the place with those, uh, and then at question time, lay into her. Like, don't, don't hold back, don't be polite. Uh, you know, but, but I don't blame people if they want to take it one step further. I mean, I don't, I don't think she is entitled to that platform. I don't think she's entitled to the sort of respectability that the platform confers. Well, I mean, how much respectability is it? Because it's it's like the college Republican group, which probably consists of like a a dozen people, invites someone to come speak at like a lecture hall at 7 p.m. on a Wednesday. This is not like, you know, being granted uh, an honorary diploma or something. It's... No, it's not, but you, you start to rack up, like, you know, her, as, as she'll, she'll be like, I've, you know, presented on the campuses of Yale and Harvard and Stanford and all, you know, there's, there's, there's a way you build this kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and it, it normalizes, I mean, let's put it this way. Everyone who thinks that this is a free speech thing, I think, agrees that, like, a literal Klansman should not speak, you know, in his robe or whatever, should not speak on a campus, right? Yeah. Uh, that, or, like, should not burn a cross in the middle of, uh, of, of, of uh, the Columbia campus or something, right? Mm-hmm. So, so what precisely is the distinction being defended in saying that Charles Murray, who, who did burn a cross and who was seen by... I think like the Southern Poverty Law Center might seem as racist, but you know, he has this AEI respectability and he's friends with a lot of more mainstream pundits. Like what, what exactly is it that makes him okay and makes the Klansman not okay? Like we've already conceded that there's not an absolute, there's an absolute right to free speech at the point of you don't get put in jail. Um, and Congress can't pass laws censoring you. But, but as far as like appearing in polite society, you know, being welcomed as a guest in universities, like, uh, we, we, we all agree that that's not absolute. Yeah. Uh, in, fact, in fact, Barry Weiss, as, as has been repeatedly documented, and, and, and I was there, um, you know, devoted much of her undergraduate career to aggressively no-platforming, uh, Mid- Middle East studies professors, mostly of, of Arab and or Muslim background, um, you know, in and while she maintains that she was not trying to get them fired, this is slightly disingenuous if you know anything about how tenure committees work. You know, basically she was trying to poison their reputation so they could never get tenure. Now, she has the right to do that, honestly. I mean, I think other people have the right to push back. I think it was gross and McCarthyist in a lot of ways, but it, it is protected speech what she was doing. Uh, and, um, and, and I think she has the right to do it. But I don't understand how you can do that and be completely unrepentant about that and also do things like smear Linda Sarsour by association with Louis Farrakhan, uh, you know, and have her be responsible for everything he's ever said in the pages of the New York Times and then and then claim that, you know, Christina Hoff Summers or Barry Weiss or, or whoever is being no platform. Like, that doesn't make sense to me. Yeah, I agree. That's what like hypocrisy. Yeah, the, the hypocrisy by Weiss is striking. I would like to say I uh, emailed... Um, Barry Weiss at what I believe is her email address, and I didn't get a bounce back to invite her onto blogging heads and received no response. So, um, Barry, if you're listening to this, the uh, offer still stands if you'd like to come on and discuss some of these issues. Um, well, but actually, actually, uh, Arya, in many ways, that gets to my exact point. She doesn't need blogging heads because she's been on Bill Maher twice in the right. last month or so. 
Whereas, you know, lowly Twitterers like you, you or I, uh, you know, this or podcasts or whatever. I mean, honestly, my best platform, if I may say so, is my Twitter account. Like that's, I reach a bigger audience there than I ever reached getting published anywhere, including the New York Times op-ed page. Uh, but, um, but you know, the point is like, we, we don't, Barry Weiss is not lacking for prestige platforms right now. Barry Weiss is not lacking for access. Right. Barry Weiss, her... is, the least, Barry Weiss is the least censored person in America. I was thinking that she's the real queen of all media because she manages, I mean, we've been talking about her for like two months straight and she, it's not like she's really done something impressive um, to get to, to gain that level. But um yeah, do you want to do you want to talk about cars for a little bit before we wrap up? Uh, gosh, we have been going on a long time, haven't we? Yeah, we've gone um, about an hour. Yeah, we have. Um, well, there's a lot to say on this topic. Clearly, I have a lot to say on this topic. Um, you know, we we didn't even really scratch the surface of you know the kind of trolling Brett Stevens does, or you know what you know what I, I want to say before we leave that all together. Yeah. People will be like, oh, it doesn't matter. They're just columnists. Okay, at the very least, it matters because, you know, the New York Times is devoting precious resources to these salaries when, meanwhile, they've laid off half their copy desk. And now I see copy uh, errors all the time all over the place. And, you know, they could be hiring more reporters to cover more things, to cover poor communities of color, to cover, you know, foreign bureaus, to cover the arts, which they've been cutting. I mean, there are so many really substantive things they could do. And there's so many really good reporters at the Times. Um, for instance, uh, there's Jody Cantor and Megan Quoey, who uh, narrowly beat Ronan Farrow to break the Weinstein story mm-hmm. uh, and by extension start the Me Too movement, which I don't want to get too much into the actual Me Too movement right now, but I think it's fair to say is one of the most important cultural upheavals of, of recent history. Yeah, I would say, uh, I, I mean, we were, talking, every, we were making some of the polls here before, but uh, they certainly yeah. deserve it. And um, every, yeah, the most, every, the most imper- every important... Bit is, the, every bit as important as, uh, you know, the gay marriage revolution or trans rights or... Black yeah, I, I mean, I think their article was the most... Um, yeah, was the most effective, or the article with like the biggest impact since like the Pentagon. No, no, no one doubts that they set it off, and, and then it was kind of a one-two punch with Pharaoh, which is to say, the New York Times has changed the world uh, in the last several months uh, mm-hmm. in incredible ways, in ways that I think are overwhelmingly positive. Um, but meanwhile, there is this sort of attempt to gin up a backlash, and where is it coming from? It's coming from the New York Times op-ed page where there's concern trolling from Brett Stevens and Barry Weiss. Uh, it's coming from the formerly James Bennett-run Atlantic where Caitlin Flanagan is doing it. It's coming from Katie Royfe, who seems to be on the same page and possibly friends with all these people. Uh, you know, and, and they're, um, and they're making what I think are bad faith, disingenuous and often really offensive arguments that don't give the women who are leading this movement a lot of credit. For seriousness, and that are just in no way helpful, um, and 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 really undermine the. I mean, pe- people are like, "Oh, we want to start debate. We want to start free speech." You know who's starting debate and free speech? The Me Too movement, as set off by by Cantor and Chloe, right? Like they are getting people to say things that they were afraid to say. Mm-hmm. They're getting people to tell the truth uh, in in all media about men who were protected um, by, by just a culture of fear. I mean, you want to talk about the suppression of free speech. How about, how about Harvey uh, Weinstein hiring Mossad agents to like stalk all the women that he's raped and harassed. So they never say anything. I mean, that's, 
that's the suppression of free speech. That's that's real no platforming, right? Mm-hmm. And like, uh, and 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 the way you like, I believe in punditry and opinion journalism and opinionated analysis. I believe strongly in it. But like, the most important thing journalists can do is report on the powerful and expose them and empower regular people to speak about what they're doing. And that's what Times reporters have done. Uh, you know, the opinion section has not only not done anything remotely comparable to that, but I think is actually trying to undo that to and, and failing, I think. But like, uh, I, I just I just see it as as a fundamental insult. And and I will say, although this is a little catty of me, that as my Twitter following has grown, New York Times writers and editors keep following me. And I absolutely will not give any identifying details about it, <laughs> as well as, you know, friends and family of them, sometimes sliding into my DMs. Um, I would say between that and the fact that other people who are putting out the same kind of criticisms as me have said this as well, and um, the, the stuff that Ashley Feinberg's reported at the Huffington Post, um, it's pretty clear there's a lot of anger at the Times newsroom where Dean Baquet, uh, whatever, God, I should know how to pronounce his name, has imposed this draconian social media policy where, where no one who works there is basically allowed to have any public opinions about anything, ever. Yes. Um, which I think is insane. And, um, and, and, and so it leads to a lot of them subtweeting or liking tweets insulting their colleagues or DMing people or leaking stories to other media outlets. You know, I, I couldn't tell you what the scale of it is. I, I'm not sure anyone could. But there is a lot of rage being suppressed. And a lot of it is racialized also. A lot of people who are like, why is so much white mediocrity, not just the wrong opinions and the trolling, but like, you know, inaccurate information, frauds that get published and have to be corrected, you know, why is this all being permitted uh, on the op-ed page while everyone else is trying to do hard work? And in the recordings that were released, there were uh, unidentified apparent journalists of color uh, saying that they, they feel like it's a hostile work environment for them, mm-hmm. that, that you know, there's this path to, to sort of troll the libs from the right for, for, for these white people who don't uh, follow basic journalistic standards who can't be bothered to do fact-checking, you know? Yeah. Uh, It really does seem like there's, you know, a um, a different standard to which some of these people in question are are held. It it sure does. It sure does. And, you know, I've been accused of being personally mean by people that I know socially and people who are friends. And all I can say is, I understand why this is hard. I understand that, you know, but like everything I'm saying is true and it resonates. And that's the point of journalism. And I don't feel like journalists and people who went to the same schools and so on should just protect each other, you know, out of, out of some sense of like elite loyalty or whatever. Like journalists are supposed to tell the truth. And certainly if opinion journalists are going to go around smearing people's reputations, they should get their facts right. Uh, and, um, you know, I, I am kind of unimpressed by, by people who are unwilling to do that, unwilling to apologize when they get things wrong, unwilling to apologize when they do things like try to get, um, a freelancer, uh, uh, fired by, by her clients for really no apparent reason. Um, and then, you know, lying to reporters at the Washington Post about what actually went down there. I mean, I, I, I just... 
I feel righteously indignant about this. And I think that I, I'm right too. And I think that everyone else who's been complaining is right too as well. Uh, on behalf of the many, many, many journalists out there who take their work seriously and, uh, and, and are losing jobs all over the place mm-hmm. because the industry is collapsing. And, uh, and it's just, it's sort of a standing insult to see what gets rewarded and what doesn't. Um, if you were granted for 24 hours the powers of James Bennett, um, and you were able to hire or fire whoever you wanted, oh, you, 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 you should have you should have let me prep this. <laughs> I know what you're going to ask. Yeah, well, I mean, who who or would you who would you hire? Who do you think is like the socialist or leftist uh, opinion writer who should be hired? Who, who should who should the the you know actual Trump supporter like? Like, like, heaven forfend, they, they hire someone who actually voted for Donald J. Trump as 45 yeah. million of you know, our I, countrymen did. I go, I go back, I go back and forth on that second point on whether it's a good idea or not. I mean, I think on, on one level, I would respect the idea of we need to hear this perspective and is there anyone who can articulate it convincingly and maybe we should give that person a column. Uh, the reality is though, of course, that person would probably be not only not the most articulate, um, uh, you know, scholar or whatever, but, but also, uh, I mean, you and I both know, and frankly, everyone on the Times op-ed page knows that the essence of Trumpism is, is bigotry. Um, and that a truly unvarnished look at it would be bigotry. So I would, I would, I can, I can see the case for Trump. I can certainly see the case for like what I said with McCarthy or someone like maybe Michael Brendan Doherty or sometimes Ross Douthat or other people who are, um, a lot of people who passed through the American conservative who, um, who could make the case for, um, for a more isolationist foreign policy or, uh, or for, um, more economic nationalism. I could definitely see running some stuff like that, but I'm skeptical of, of a reflexive Trump defender because I basically think Trump is indefensible. And I think that the times could do a good job of covering why people vote for him. And I think frankly, a better job than they have done. But I just, I don't, I don't really think there are intelligent arguments to be made on his behalf. I think that the arguments, I think when they attempt to do it is when they gave their whole op-ed page to Trump supporters, what ends up happening is a lot of lies and bullshit get published and just preposterous statements that aren't even worth seriously engaging with because he's created an alternate reality where facts don't matter. And, uh, and, and, and you don't, I don't really believe you can be an intellectually serious and honest person and defend that reality. I think you can defend some of the, um, I think you can attack liberalism for the ways that it facilitated that reality in some way. You can also attack mainstream conservatism for that. Mm-hmm. I think you can talk about how, you know, free trade policies and so on, um, or unfettered immigration. I mean, I, that has a very dangerous racial subtext to it, but, uh, but you can talk about how things like that, about how globalization, about how I would on the left emphasize inequality, you know, you, I mean, to really challenge, um, New York Times readers and get them out of their comfort zones, you don't do that by having a, a you know, irrelevant person like Brett Stevens, uh, you know, blatantly troll them. That just pisses them off and confirms their view that Republicans are, are, are trolls, uh, correctly, but, um, but, uh, you know, what, what actually would challenge them 
would be somebody who questions the things that Brett Stevens agrees with them on, somebody who who questions basically the economic and social consensus of the last 40 years. And um, I think someone like James Bennett is unwilling or possibly even in, incapable of, of imagining what that would look like, even though it's all around. So to the question, who would I have on the left? I mean, there's there's an embarrassment of riches, really. Um, ideally, it would be someone who's not a white man. Um, so I guess some of the more obvious names that come to mind would be people like Bhaskar Sankara, who founded Jacobin, uh, Sarah Jones, who I, uh, am friendly with, who, um, writes for the New Republic, um, Elizabeth Brunig, who's at the Post right now, and actually is an iconoclastic person. I mean, she, she, on what I consider a pretty core issue, uh, abortion rights, she, uh, sometimes is in a more wavering place, but she's brilliant a generous writer, an intellectually honest writer, and clearly of the left. Um, her husband, Matt, is also a very important left voice, I think. Um, a lot of people at The Intercept, uh, with probably more of a national security focus, which would be totally new for the Times to have that perspective. Um, I think uh, someone like my friend Ryan Cooper uh, just does week after week, uh, or multiple times a week, incredibly substantive well-argued, decidedly left, timely, newsy takes. He proves that can be done, mm-hmm. uh, that, that you can just, like, be smart and on the news uh, and opinionated, but, you know, evidence-based. Um, you know, or uh, I think it doesn't even have to be that far left. I mean, I, I think, I think like, Adam Serwer is doing amazing work at The Atlantic. I think, I think there are just so many... Um, I think there's a there's a writer named Tressie McMillan Cottom. She's a she's an academic, I think, in Virginia, uh, and she she does wonderful writing on kind of the intersection of race and class. Uh, and and I mean, the, I could go on and on forever, but I, I just I, I think there are so many fresh voices who could be on that page. Um, and uh, and that's just instead we got Brett Stevens. Yeah, um, I mean that that statement that Bennett made that like the you know the New York Times believes in capitalism um, was was very telling, and um, I, there are there are many, many more people who do not believe in capitalism who are are compatriots uh, in this in this nation, and um, yeah. there are more, and more that of them every be day. As time goes on, yeah, I think I think the Times is I think what greats about about the Barry hiring in particular as uh, she's actually one of a number of uh, older millennial. Um, opinion editors that they hired in the last year, uh, some of whom are quite good and one of whom I worked with, but I'm definitely naming no names here. Um, but, uh, she's the only one who writes, which I find odd. Um, and, um, not quite as a staff columnist, but as a pretty regular contributor. And I find it strange that in a generation that is overwhelmingly progressive and then within that overwhelmingly for Bernie and also for kind of intersectional, issues, uh, you know, and, uh, I find it very weird that the sort of the only regular millennial voice in the New York times in 2018 is someone who I think would describe herself as a liberal, but like, I'm not sure all liberals would accept that designation and, 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 uh, you know, somewhere between that and neocon, but definitely unrepresentative of, of, of where her generation is moving and, and of the many, you know, publications and 
and um, online multimedia presences in which people are becoming really important voices. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, and I, I I just think that's a shame that 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 those voices aren't front and center. Um, I think the Times is. I mean, they could still do it, maybe not under Bennett, I don't know. But I think the Times is blowing an opportunity to to embrace, you know, what the next generation of progressive thinking is. And instead, they're kind of leaving behind these liberal boomer dinosaurs and then bringing in trolls. And it just, I, it doesn't, I don't even, it's hard to say whose interest is being served besides the trolls themselves. Yeah, um, I would just... Um speak up for, I mean, they, they need to hire someone who supports Trump. Like that half the country supported him. We may think these people are misguided, but um, we're stuck with them <laughs> and we need to know how Trump supporters think. And uh, if there's no internal logic to how they think, then the, uh, that will be displayed in the, uh, in the column that, that doesn't hold together so we can critique it. Um, but the fact that they can't find anyone, um, who, I mean, it's like, well, but who would you know, who, who has found someone who, who is the smartest pro-Trump writer? I, I mean, there's someone like, like Scott McConnell or someone like that. I mean, I don't think Doherty didn't vote do for like Trump, that. but Doherty writes about the things that, um, kind of the but, ideal populist Trump would have you supported. take my point, right? Like it's difficult to get to one. Yeah, and it's I, not I agree. It is. It's Basically difficult. It's hard to, to find an intellectually serious person who can consistently make, yeah. the, make the case for, for Trump. I agree it's hard, but it, but having, when they already had their two house conservatives were never Trump, uh, bringing in some additional never Trump people, when the never Trump conservatives represent at most like 2% of the country, it, it just was such a stupid move. It was, it was, but you know, the other thing is they, they think of them as intellectually serious and then, you know, we start digging into that. It's like, well, how intellectually serious is Brett Stevens really? I mean, he knows the right things to say to not get pushed out of liberal company, but like, um, I think he makes specious and fraudulent and misleading arguments all the time. I think he's basically uh, a huckster too. I mean, I think that the Republican party for my entire lifetime has been run that way. Uh, I have, I make no apologies about saying that. And I, I believe that my analysis, my opinions, everything I say is stronger for being completely, um, clear on that. And everybody who dances around that or tries to make it not true, uh, is, is distorting reality rather than dealing with reality. The reality is there is a far right extremist party that is one of our two major parties. And if, if the election of Donald Trump doesn't get people to see that clearly. I don't know what would. Like it just, it just the people are in deep denial. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I basically agree with you. Um, I, I've harped on Twitter for a while about the conservative movement being a scam, and it, a scam. it was taken over by the greatest con artists in the country. And then the con artist pulled pulled a con on the entire country, and that's where we are today. Um, why don't we? Why don't we end let's, it there? Let's not do cars. Yeah, let's let's end it there. So. Um, uh, pieces or anything you want to plug before we uh, before we leave? Um, I shouldn't jinx it, but I think I have a piece coming out in the nation next week, so I guess watch out for that. It'll be about my favorite um, real subject, which is which is Russia and Russia Gate. Um, 
Uh, people can read my case in the foreword that looks like a troll case, but I actually think is right and substantive that was published uh, just the other day where I argue that um, these remarks Putin made in an interview with Megyn Kelly that were interpreted as anti-Semitic um, actually were not uh, and were pretty innocuous in a Russian context. And I go into the history of Jews in Russia, something I know a lot about. Um, and actually, an example of not everyone agreeing, even if they're sort of in the broad same camp, uh, a writer I know socially uh, named Talia Lavin, uh, who's a fact checker at The New Yorker, also Jewish, also uh, writes about Russia and speaks Russian. Uh, she and I got into it on Twitter. It was heated over whether Putin was an anti-Semite or not. And we ended up both writing directly dueling op-eds uh, for the Jewish Daily Forward, um, in which we took both sides of that debate. I, of course, think that I won, but people can go and read both and see for themselves. We both made intelligent, respectful arguments. And also Talia, who came out um, the day after mine, uh, directly references mine, which is something New York Times op-ed writers are forbidden from doing. They're not allowed to yeah. address each other directly. And there, there was a period when, like, Paul Krugman and David Brooks were, like, subtweeting each other in their columns, which is, which is funny, but also, like, this is stupid. Like, we're, we're adults. Your readers are adults. Your writers are or should be adults. Like, everywhere else is having a more intelligent conversation than what's going on on the pages of the Times right now, with noble exceptions, such as, of course, my Times op-ed on how that should frame the Russiagate thing, which was perfect and flawless. Um I want to mention briefly two pieces I put on my blog. One is a logical proof showing that Donald Trump is a moron, um, which is in uh, about 200 words. I, I, I proved it for all time. You can't. I use facts and logic, um, <laughs> and I don't care about your feelings because I use facts. And the other is a humor piece that I wrote um, imagining Trump um, stopping an active shooter. Um, so I'll include links to those two things. Um, wow. So Dave, did he, uh, did he use the Megan McArdle uh, method of, of rushing the shooter? Well, I don't want to spoil anything. Let's just say he has his, he has his long tie and he throws the tie and he's able to grab the gun like that. So it's, I'll have to check it out. Um, so, Dave, thanks for coming on. Uh, thanks course. to all of our viewers and listeners. And we'll all, see you. all three of you. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, thanks for sticking with it. And we'll see yeah. you next time. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to Blogging Heads TV. You can help support this content by remembering to like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. You can subscribe to all Blogging Heads episodes or to a specific program by going to our subscribe page at bloggingheads.tv slash subscribe. There you can sign up for podcast downloads via iTunes or Stitcher, or you can subscribe to our email and we'll send you an alert every time we post a new episode.